Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein once again here with Yolanda Charles, whose last name is my first name, first thing to point out. And she is a uh, incredible bass guitar player, lives in the UK. And I um, got to know her just a little bit through our online community. And she has some amazing stories to tell. And, and um, I guess the theme of our conversation, at least that we're going to start with, is trust. And then Yolanda, you also sent me um, kind of a letter that also talked about luck. And so I really want to get into trust and luck with you. And um, what else can I say? Uh, she's she's played with the band Squeeze with Hans Zimmer and some other names that I recognized, which means they must be pretty famous if I recognize them. <laughs> so anyway, Yolanda, is there anything else you'd like to add about yourself? Um. Well, I usually say mother of three from London, you know, because that's a, a main focus of my life is being a mum. And um, yeah, that's it. I've been a professional musician for over, well, about 30 years. And yeah, just um, everything has that's happened around me and to me has been oriented around music, but has fed into every other area of my life. And then that that's also happened in a kind of circle as well as well as, you know, being a parent, what you learn there, and that's informed how I interact with band members and, you know, everything's sort of so connected. Um, I can start anywhere in the circle and end up at any point talking about childbirth or, you know, selecting an instrument, the luck of that and the, you know, the timing. So everything's connected. So yeah, where do I begin? You know, mm -hmm. that's me, mum of three and a bass player. Yeah. How old are your children? eldest is 24 then my daughter's 21 and my youngest is just about to turn 15. Wow it's almost exactly the same ages as Patsy and my children. Oh okay you've got yeah. a teen yeah. Oh we have a 24 year old a 22 year old and a 16 year old. Okay. Yeah and then I also with in a second marriage I have a eight-year-old. Yes. Yeah That's so um, yeah and and what you're I, I love what you say about like the centrality of being a mom of being a parent because in our society, it's like this separate thing, you know, from your career that almost maybe is like something that gets in the way of your career. And, and yet you have to balance these two things rather than bringing them all together. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're comfortable, you know, at the outset, like that might be a good segue to the story that you told us on our community where, where you were pretty much asked to sacrifice one for the other. Mm -hmm. and you faced this situation. Can you uh, take us back there? 
Sure. I mean, the way that I detailed the story, I, I skipped through so many really fundamentally important um, points and pathway sort of uh, crossroad points, you know, and to each time there's a crossroad point, you end up taking the left path and, mm. you know, and why you did and all of that. That's all in the story. But I yeah, you can feel free to tell the longer oh, version of it. now. I, you haven't got enough time. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> It's it's long. What's great about all of this is that I'm actually understanding these pathways myself now, mm -hmm. because at the time I was just living it. And when you tell a story retrospectively, it sounds like you're reading a, from a book or a film script because it's sort of all worked out so neatly. And what's left out is the the pain of the decision making and what leads to the decision making, all the wisdoms you pick up that help you to decide. So, you know, I'm actually writing a book because it's so convoluted and detailed to actually really illustrate how pathways are selected and under what circumstances and things which is great but my story that I told uh, in the forum was um, one of being a professional musician and um, at the crossroads point I was at was that I'd not long been divorced or separated at least and I was full-on as a single mum and I had a point at which I had to decide whether I was to take a tour that would get me out of a really like huge financial hole where I couldn't really provide for my children adequately. We were kind of struggling um, the way we were living. We were getting on okay, but it was a pressure on us. Um, There's four of us in the home and we had a, we were living in a two bedroom flat and you know, we didn't have a, a, a space to eat communally. So um, because you know, we, ha we had one of the, the main room was the a bedroom. And so we were, you know, I would prepare food and then give the food to my children on trays and they'd be sitting on the floor, you know, it's all very sort of full of pathos. And, but, you know, it wasn't very nice for my kids, but we, we laughed about it more often than cried. I and mean, we're that kind of family. So I had this opportunity now to get us out of this, this hole we were in. And um, it turned out that the option to join this tour was going to create such a problem for my youngest daughter because she was 10 and I would be away for 22, 23 weeks. It was too long. I had done others that were shorter and they had shown her that she really couldn't handle that length of time away. So I made the decision to give up my ambitions to get us into a space that was large enough for us to live in um, and to stay at home and quit effectively. And quitting actually wouldn't have just meant not going on that particular tour it would have been quitting all tours really at that time because she needed me at home um so I would have then had to rethink my income uh and when I'm not touring you know I don't work a huge amount I'm definitely a live musician I'm on stage most of the time for my career as opposed to somebody who works in the studio a lot or writes which I don't do um in terms of, you know, my successes aren't about my writing skills. So I knew that I would potentially have to change my job. So there's more to it, you know, than I told on the um, forum. Uh, changing your job potentially means changing a career, you know, uh, maybe going to do something completely disconnected from what I love. And so all of that was in this decision to then decide, right, I'm not going on tour. I'm going to quit. I'm going to stay at home with my, ch my children and work it out. So I made the decision. Um, and I, I emailed my boss, I didn't want to call him. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, well, basically, when I told my daughter I was quitting, I saw the relief on her face, and a little bit of fear that she was the cause of something negative for me. But I really reassured her that I was making this decision because 
her happiness genuinely was what's more interest of more interest to me than anything. And I, I think she believed me. So I could see the happiness in her that I decided to make this move and I felt it was the right thing to do. Um, and that was an amazing, a lovely confirmation. And then I wrote to my boss and told him that I'd made this decision. And not long after that, he phoned me and he said, what's going on? Why can't you come on this tour? And I said, well, look, I can't leave my daughter. It's just too long and it's going to cause so much of a, you know, so much stress for everybody. So he said, well, that's not a problem. <laughs> just bring her <laughs> along. <laughs> I said, what? Really? And he said, yeah, just bring her and we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll get her a tutor. We'll, I'll help you. You know, I'll, I'll put my signature to a letter to your school. If there's any authorities that need to be, um, you know, had have this explained to and take her out of school. And yeah, ultimately my 10 year old and then she just about turned 11. We went on tour around the world and the artist was, um, composer Hans Zimmer and uh, it was a perfect tour for my daughter to come along because it was you know age range from six mid 60s to the youngest were I think something like 20 21 and there was 20 of us on the three buses so she was able to have such a mixed experience and make friends with people from all generations and we were together and I could earn some money to pay for things instead of having to change my career and do a straight job or whatever so it was a win-win-win but I didn't actually design any of it I didn't plan any of it and that's the bit that's the magic bit the beauty of it is having made a decision I feel for the right reasons which was for my happiness and my daughter's happiness and the health of the family, even though it felt like a difficult decision to make, um, it wasn't when I considered that. And I just feel like, oh, I don't know. It just felt like being made for those reasons, not only did it make it easier than to be afraid, but it also, it meant that when I received this sudden gift, it actually felt genuinely like a real gift. It wasn't a manipulation tactic. It wasn't a threat. It wasn't, you know, me hoping that the outcome would be that I'd get this offer. It didn't occur to me. I genuinely made up, made my mind up that I wasn't going. It had gone into my body, the feeling that I was quitting. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't grief stricken about that. And it was a really nice feeling. And then to have that gift given to me in that way, I did actually shed a little tear, to be quite honest. I was so grateful. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like you had some uh, spiritual teaching that if you uh, surrender, then you'll have it all. Like you actually took a step into the unknown. Yes. And definitely. yeah, you said that there was a backstory too, more of a backstory. And I wonder, was there a previous crossroads where you made either like a different choice and then regretted it and were like, oh gosh, I really don't want to do that again. Or a previous crossroads where you made the same kind of choice that um, encouraged you to take even a bigger risk the next time. Like what is a little bit of the backstory? Well, I, I, it's really strange. My life is quite weird. Um, there's so many of these, but they're not the same. They're all very different. But I have so many points where I have, I call them sliding door moments. You know that film? I haven't actually seen it, but I've had it described to me where she gets off the train or she doesn't get off the train. You get both scenarios or whatever. So I feel like I have quite a few of these, which are quite clear, um, you know, moments. And one was um, 
and uh, was I ambitious? I think I was ambitious to be a successful bass player so I could pay my bills. But I didn't really look much further than that. I didn't know what a successful bass player looked like. But I knew a successful bass player meant um, being employed. So I had just done a really great run of work. And again, how that work happened was another one of those moments. But if I can go back to that one if you want. I mean, there's so many. But this one was after this amazing moment, I met Katie Lang. And um, she then offered me a year touring with her in, through North America, or well, through probably the world, I imagine, eventually. It was one of those moments of, wow, going from, I think I was 23 or 24, 24, of course, um, going from having this hope to having a full-on life as a session-based player, uh, and then actually the offer, the offer coming in. Um, I was at that moment, but I just met my husband-to-be at the time. He was an early days boyfriend and it felt like, I mean, I hadn't dated and dated and dated. I only had like a few boyfriends before, but he felt like, I think this is the one, I think this is the man I'm going to marry eventually maybe, but it was so early days and um, I had a decision to make. Do I go on this world tour? around the world with Katie Lang, who's an amazing artist, or do I see what's gonna happen with this guy? And I waited, they only gave me a little kind of, you know, hint that they were gonna come back to me with dates and things later. And if a couple of months passed and I'd rushed headlong into this relationship by now and they called and I missed the call and it was just a, a, a message and I was gonna call back, but I waited because I thought I might be pregnant, but I didn't know it was too early to tell. So I was oh, unsure what to do. I had to call them back. And I just thought, I think I might be pregnant. So I'm going to say no, that's it. And I phoned them back and I said, I can't do the tour because I've got uh, too much going on here and I want to come, but I can't. And I just chose family. And I was pregnant and I quit that particular option to go and start my career. And I've got three beautiful children from that. But um, that was one of those moments. And I feel like, you know, it didn't matter what one jot that I missed that tour. But at the time I was thinking, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? But I actually just settled into my decision and let it go. And now it's just one of those stories when people say to me, oh, well, should I or shouldn't I? I don't have answers for people ever. I just explain to uh, people my thought processes, how I make decisions, and they're not based on, um, you know, whether I'm going to achieve a goal that I've set out for myself. Will this relationship turn out to be the one where I get married and have children? I think it is, so I'm gonna do that. It was, I don't know, but it might. And that's enough to keep me going. It's the next possibility, the next um, idea, the next, uh, the potential is the word I'm looking for, mm. the excitement of the potential. And I just went for that instead. Yeah, it sounds like like you're almost offering a formula for luck, which <laughs> is settle into, I settled into my decision and I let go. Let go, that's the one I yeah. think. Yeah, because in the first story you told too, the the the, offer that came, that totally unexpected offer, oh, you can take your daughter with you, we'll hire a tutor, et cetera. You said, in fact, that it seemed like a gift. And in general, what we call luck, it lands as a gift. It's like 
I just lucked into it. You know, I, I didn't earn it. I didn't create it. I didn't make it happen. I didn't even necessarily deserve it. Like I didn't even karmically engineer this good thing to happen, right? That's what's called luck. Like I was, I was just lucky. There's a kind of a humility actually in recognizing luck and embracing luck. And however, I think, because in your letter to me also, you said, you know, you've looked at maybe what qualities do I have that make me lucky, but, but it's not any of that. It is on a deeper level, maybe we're touching on luck kind of comes as a return gift, perhaps. And it's a return gift of trust, which is letting go. Like you can only become lucky if you've already made that step. And it doesn't guarantee you'll be lucky, but it opens you up to a whole other level of 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 happening, right? Yes. It sounds like you, you have something to say about that. Yes, I think the trust is in the uh, feeling. Uh, yeah, it's almost like a feeling of, of rightness. So it's not anything that you can describe. Maybe there's a chemical, biological explanation for it. But I feel that when something's done authentically, genuinely from a good place, the right place, the place to do something that with the right intention, it has a, a it's had an effect on my life of paying forward to actually help me again later. And here's a story which I think might actually tie into why Hans Zimmer offered to support me the way he did because there are pathways to everything. So I don't think luck is random. I don't think it comes from nowhere. I think it actually comes as a natural result of steps taken earlier, but that you didn't engineer or manufacture to happen that way. This one, I could not have manufactured to happen this way because the gap was, uh, oh my gosh, let me see. It was 13, 12 years of a gap, of a payoff of a situation. So it started with, <laughs> All right, where do you start again? I can say everything's connected. I'll start from deciding to make my own record, which is something I'd had ambitions to do since I was uh, young and at home. And I actually managed to do this whilst on tour um, with another a big artist with lots of gaps in the in the scheduling so I could write this record. And it was a really exciting thing to have done. And I finally finished this record. I didn't sing on it. I got these amazing singers to sing on it for me. Um, and it was the first time I'd produced a record and gone in studio and, and realized my dream of having an album of my own material, which is just the best. And that was it. That was as far as I went with it, really, to be quite honest. I'd, that was job done, box ticked. However, my um, ex-partner's uh, brother um, sadly was um, terminally ill with cancer. And he loved my record and he loved me, you know, and he just said to me, look, I, I don't think I've got long. Um, I'm going to throw a 50th birthday party. And he said, I want you to play at my party. And he said, I want you to play songs from your record. So I said, oh, what? Um, okay. I was trying to figure out how to do this. Didn't have any money to pay musicians. He said, no, you should sing it because I've heard your demos. And I said, well, I didn't sing the record. I got great singers because singing is not my strength. So he said, I don't care. It's for me and I, I want to hear you. So I, I'm Denard. I went in the studio, tried to practice this stuff. It was really difficult. I phoned him up and said, um, I can't do it. I just can't. It's physically impossible to sing these songs and play bass at the same time. It's very, very complex, you know, the rhythmic interplay. And he said, <laughs> bless poor 
he said, um, I'm a dying man. How could you possibly refuse? He really did that. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you've done this. How could you, how could you use that? And he said, listen, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to do whatever I can to get what I want. So I, I'm now with this total guilt trip, loving him and hating him at the same time kind of thing. And I went back into the studio and I sat there, honestly, I had agreed now, but I had a limited amount of time. I worked that thing, the hardest I've ever done anything, I think. And I worked out how to sing and play at the same time. It was so difficult because the rhythmic interplay of my bass lines, very, very uh, syncopated, complex. And then I'd written the lyrics without that in mind. So now I'm having to work out how to work all this together. I, but I did it. And I did his uh, 50th birthday with uh, a, a drummer, my ex-partner and his best friend on guitar. And we just did a little trio. When I finished that performance, I felt so proud of myself. It was amazing. And it gave me a little boost. And then after that, I started to get little invitations here and there to do some personal appearances on bass. But I was terrified to play bass without a band or to speak. I couldn't speak publicly, uh, you know, to a group of people. I was the silent bass player in the back. Now I'm getting asked by colleges to do little lectures and workshops. So my way to remedy that was to, to face it was to do that with a band. So I thought I'll do my little trio or expand it to a quartet. And then I had this little protection where I could speak, but then play lots and speak a little bit and play lots. So that started in 2006. Um, and I went on honing that craft. I never got absolutely brilliant at it, but I could get to the point where I could really handle the pressure. It was the pressure and the fear and the terror of being up front on the mic. You know, I overcame that, that was really tough. Spent a number of years and then 2016, right? So this is now 10, 12 years later. My dad was not looking too great health wise. And I had to go on tour. It was a longish tour, but not as long as the next year's offer. And that was when my daughter obviously decided she didn't want me to go away again. I'd just done a 16. This was a 16 week, I think, tour. Hmm. And um, I got news that Prince had died, like everybody else knew. And we were all really affected by it. And that night when he'd passed away, uh, I stayed up with some guys in the room, in my room, listening to music and drinking, oh, singing Prince songs a little bit sort of worse for the wear, you know, stayed up till five in the morning. Oops. And we had a gig the next day and I was a little bit hungover and a bit, you know, <laughs> tired, just to say the least. And um, Hans called when I was packing my bag. It was about two in the afternoon. And he said, you know, Prince has died. Um, we want to do a tribute to him. Um, we're going to perform purple rain and I said oh great idea and he said I want you to sing it and I said what <laughs> I said what do you mean you've never heard me sing and he said well you've got a couple of little videos I've seen the YouTube videos and I said oh, okay so I thought about it and I went oh I couldn't say no because it's hands and it's commemorating Prince's you know Anyway, so I agreed and then I had to download the lyrics from the internet. I didn't know the song that verbally, I know the chords and uh, I had it written on, on a hotel notepad. And then we were in the bus and I'm practicing this song. I'd never sung before live. In fact, I'd never sung a cover of someone else's music live before, but I'd agreed to do this thing now. Got to the sound check. We ran it through. I'd never played bass and sang it before, but I'd had the last 12 years practicing playing and singing because of my my mm -hmm. brother-in-law and um 
my tech wrote all the lyrics out in black Sharpie on a white paper and put it on the floor. I'd been crying the night before because of Prince's death and my dad, to be quite honest, I was crying about my dad more than Prince. It's just that it was the timing, you know. So I had dark glasses on to hide the fact that I was all puffy. And this show was um, an 11,000 seater sold out gig. We did our set uh, most of the first half and then Hans introduced me as about to sing this song. And I just got up there and sang the first verse and looked up, I was looking like that down to read the lyrics. And I looked up and all the audience had their iPhone lights on and they were doing that torch song mm. at the moment. And it was really, it hit me like a wave of celebration, sharing shared grief, uh, ceremony. And I was pr uh, presiding over or, you know, being that person that was kind of holding the ceremony at that moment. And it was in the most incredible feeling and it felt like I just almost had this rush of memory of my absolute refusal, fear, terror of doing this new, developing this new skill of singing and playing at the same time for my dying brother-in-law's party that set me off on my path to being selected by hands to then perform this song to this many people on behalf to represent the band as yeah. uh, their gestures. And I just couldn't have created a better sort of scenario of getting used to being terrified, putting myself in really difficult situations, um, you know, and preparing for that and developing this stamina and, and uh, I guess, you know, resilience, I suppose, and to withstand my own fear. And I just, I feel that the trust element here was, his trust in me to ask me, this is my brother-in-law, to ask me to do this gig, having never heard me sing live before. I, I can't refuse gifts when they come from places of trust like that. Mm. When somebody hands you something, they're handing you trust and it's a gift. So it's to me, I trust that. I trust that gift to mean something. And so whenever I've done those moves based on that, gift the trust of the gift being genuine and having no other thought behind it other than what's been discussed it seems to create a wave of points where it leads to so much that I get back in huge ways I could never have thought and that's one of those stories mm. wow I just so much is moving in me from hearing that story the sentence you said almost at the end I can't refuse a gift when it comes from a place of trust. There's a kind of a power in that because you can turn that around too. Like others won't be able to refuse my gifts and the world won't be able to refuse my gifts when it comes from a place of trust. So there's a kind of a power in that that is the opposite of how power is narrated to us in you know, the conventional worldview where power is about control and you can make people do the things that you want. You know, you can pay them to do it. You can coerce them to do it. That's power. Yes. But you're talking about the exact opposite of that. Yes. Because trust am. is a relinquishment of power. And so here is a kind of a, a, a magic, like, you know, how could you possibly, you could not possibly predict 
that <laughs> saying yes to this insistent offering uh, from your brother-in-law was going to lead to uh, performing, you know, with Hans Zimmer, like in front of 11,000 people saying like, there's just no way that you could ever trace that, that causal thread in advance, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so it's like you're, you're um, resting into a larger intelligence that's orchestrating the world, but it's not like you're, you know, a helpless pawn of that intelligence. You have to say yes. And maybe that's another aspect of, of luck that your story exemplifies. It's saying yes. Yeah, I have a, a very kind of personal, deep story here on that mm. in respect of that. It actually ties into um, a question you, you posed, which was times when you didn't trust mm -hmm. and resolving that, you know, what, what's the consequence of not trusting? So this one is really heavy. I was thinking about that question. I was thinking, well, I'm, I don't know. I can't think of a time where I haven't really sort of trusted things. And I just remembered a fundamental one, which is just incredible, really, because thank you for the question, because it's really helped me in other ways, just in the last three days, you know, which is this. Um, I, I believe, and I think I'm probably right here, that every child that's born wants to love their parent and wants the love of their parent as well. I think that's just given. I don't know when for different people it stops at different points in their life. Um, and for me, I couldn't trust my dad because of the story that my mother had told me. So I took on her pain of her mistrust of my dad, which was that he'd betrayed her. That was their story. But my mum really paid it forward to us, all of us. And we all had this mistrust of my dad. And because I trust, mistrusted him, I couldn't trust him with my love. So I didn't give it to him. I withheld my love. Mm. But the mistrust really was that I didn't trust my desperate need to, to love my dad. I needed to listen to myself. I was telling myself just in the way that you do when you're disappointed and then you walk away from your disappointment. I was not paying attention to my childhood, everybody's childhood desire to love their parent. I refused to listen to that because it, it would have been a healing thing to love my parent, my dad. But I didn't, I couldn't. And I just carried this and I carried it and carried it and carried it. I had lots of lots of permutations all the way through my life. So, you know, and I kind of tracing all of these things. So I have all of these stories now, but I'll go to the point where it changed, which was when I was 44. So a long time to carry resentment and mistrust. Um, you know, my dad backed up, you know, my mistrust by not being the best dad. You know, he didn't take us to the park, you know. He wasn't the best. He used to dole out the punishments, you know, his slippers and things. And of course, it reinforced the fact that he wasn't lovable or worth loving. Um, so I carried all of this until I was about 44. And what happened was I was in the middle of like, you know, just her, her, her personal hell. And I just made a decision to spend some money and go on holiday with my girls. My son didn't want to come. So we, would, we decided to go to Grenada, which is where my dad's from. It would have been the first time I'd taken my daughters there and I hadn't been there since I was five. So my dad said, well, I'm coming. Now, mind you, he'd got divorced from mum when I was 14. So we hadn't lived under the same roof since then. And 
He said he's coming because he wants to introduce me to everybody and it makes sense. And I was mortified because I've okay. still got this resentment towards my dad, even at that old age. And I didn't want him to come, but I couldn't, just couldn't do it to the guy, you know? So I kind of was like, oh, come right then, I guess you're coming. So I was terrified he was going to spoil my holiday. And lucky for me, he stayed at his sister's, my auntie. She's only a year older than him and she threw him out because they were fighting over some stuff they had when they were 16 and 17 years old, which was hilarious. So she threw him out. He's 78 and she's 79. And she just said, right, you're no longer welcome. <laughs> so he then comes to stay with us where we were staying in, in Grenada. And that's my worst fears come to pass, right? He's now with us and I'm looking after him in, 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 the, in our cousin's home thinking, I just, I didn't want this. You know, I mean, he asked things of me that, I wouldn't want to have to do like, you know, creaming his feet because he, he can't reach, you know, because they're a bit dry or something. He tried to get my daughter to do it. And she's, I don't know what she was, 15 or something. And I just was like, stop, I'll do it. I didn't want her traumatized, you know, so there I am now creaming my dad's blooming feet. You know, I'm just like, oh no, this is awful. <laughs> More things to feel resentment about, right? It's actually quite funny too, but then anyway. So um, we're now driving around the island with my dad and everything. And my auntie and my cousin starts telling me every time we get to some sort of little memory landmark, they tell me now about what my dad was like then and little ex escapades he got up to. And, you know, I started to get this fleshed out picture of who he was. And then we were in a, a grocery store and two people on two separate occasions saw us, came up to my dad, gave big hugs. How are you doing, Sonny? so great to see you and then another woman she said hi to him and then when he was talking she said your dad is a good man he's a good a fine man and i was like is he you know no clue and then i found out more about his background his actual childhood and i realized it was horrendous horrible stuff and he left the island when he was 17 to get away from it because it was that bad and i woke up one morning almost literally and i just sort of thought oh my god this guy, I, he's got this label of dad, but he's actually a label of human. He's a man, he's a person, he's, a, he's got a, a history and he's got all sorts of things going on that I'm unaware of. And I just totally labeled him as a failure as a father. And it changed for me, my regard of him. We had two weeks left in this holiday and I just stopped seeing him as a dad and saw him as a, as a person. And I can get on with very disagreeable people in my job sometimes and I managed to get on with my dad because he's just a guy, you know? I let go, I just let go of all of it because I just saw him as somebody who'd been hurt and couldn't get it right and because he hadn't had a great example and he should be forgiven and deserves it. I mean, I can't say my love poured forth, you know, instantly, it didn't, but I, the resentment died down. And then from that point onwards, this is 2015, I started to heal from this. And then he died the next year. This is the 2016 now when Prince died. My dad died literally the following month when I was on tour. And um, at his eulogy, uh, at his funeral, I read this uh, prepared piece for, for him. And I knew that I couldn't really say much about him before, um, you know, our holiday because I didn't really know him. We'd been divorced from mum and we were quite separate from each other. And I just read out, Oh, I'd written out a, um, an account of how much fun we had in those last two weeks. I had something to say that was from love. It wasn't fake. It wasn't mm. made up. It wasn't stories of other people. It was our personal experience with him. And it was real. 
And I felt really proud that I could say that genuinely, that I had found some love for him, enough to speak well of him at his death and on his, uh, at his funeral. And um, after that, I didn't quite understand how impactful that was going to be until I literally am sitting here talking to you now, because from that point onwards, I started to heal. The way I describe it is that I found my, um, or mm, I let go, you could say, of my mistrust. And I found, therefore, I guess I found trust in my need. I had a real need to love my dad. Because mm. when I started to see him more kindly and with more love, I started to heal. And it was for me, the trust was, ultimately. And when I did start to heal, I started, the way I describe it is, I stopped looking down at my feet and or inwards at my problems and I started looking up and out into the world and I started to see how beautiful the world was and then I found um, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible and I read this book and I just was like oh my god whoa this is ridiculous this is just amazing kind of introduction and welcome um, invitation to change my view of the world and from there, I was introduced to people you've spoken to on podcasts and, you know, you, you know how everything's connected when you get into certain fields and areas of thinking and you find other authors and you take in more and more learning. And eventually you get to a point where so much of what you were carrying around with you um, starts to fall away. Because the way I describe it is that when we're born, we're born free of everything that we then get loaded up the way I describe it is uh loaded up with uh I, I always see these uh cloths like little cloths that get stuck on you and then they get mounted up on you until you're covered or obscured with the weight and baggage of um traumas and problems that you've had and healing is about rather than adding things to your understanding and all of that it's actually to to remove these things over oh. time to clarify who you are and what can come through when all of that baggage is gone. And so I'm getting more to that place of just letting go of these things. And it's bringing other things into me and my understanding. Wow. Is Again, so much in that story that is working on me. Um, one, one thing that I'll just point out is that there's a kind of a universality to this story. You know, it's a very personal, specific story, but I think probably many, many people listening to this can feel the story. Like to feel, even if maybe you didn't have that kind of relationship with your father, you can feel like, at least I can feel like, like, yeah, that kind of happened to me. Like it, it's the, it reaches my person reaches my soul as well. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and another thing that comes through is just the, the magnificent mystery of life and the way that it works and how, how something seemingly like so annoying, you know, Oh my God, my dad's coming with me. Oh my God. Now he has to stay with us. You know, like that's terrible. It's actually like, like some intelligence knocking at the door. Like earlier I said, you know, you, you, you have to say yes. Well, 
even that, if you don't say yes, then the universe in its generosity is like, are you sure? Here, right. <laughs> here again, here again. Yeah. And finally, you say you cave, you know, you say, yes, okay, you know, I'm going to cream his feet, you know, I'm going to like, <laughs> let go uh, into this. And then, and it seems like, you know, maybe just like an annoyance at the time or something, but, but who could imagine that 10 years later, 15 years later, so many flowers would come as a result of that situation? Like it just humbles humbles me in awe of the intelligence that's guiding this world yeah and, and the one more thing i'll add to it and what precipitated this your caving uh and accepting this gift that was being thrust in your face repeatedly repeatedly it was uh as you told it compassion it was it was seeing how your father came to be that man that you judged uh, hearing stories of his youth and how horrific it was. There's a saying in uh, in Chinese, um, a term, ku zhong, which means kind of like the origin of your bitterness, like the kernel of your of your pain. That, like, and the saying is, everybody has their their origin of bitterness. You know, everybody has something like that that um, has hurt them and that has helped to to make them who they are. And that is an offering for them to transcend, mm -hmm. to become who they can be, like something to work against, you know, mm -hmm. um, something to overcome, an initiation. And so so anyway, like you were able to perceive the kujong of your, of your father and forgive. Like that's, you know, that has the word give in it too. It's about, forgiving is all about trust. Mm -hmm. It's about, I'm going to stop trying to benefit from this. I'm going to st stop seeking revenge. I'm going to stop holding this over you. Like to, to bear a resentment is to hold somebody in your power, at least psychologically. In reality, maybe you're not in your power at all, but, but mm. it's like you're holding on, you know? Mm. So all these things are coming together, um, I think, to, to weave the tapestry of what we've been calling luck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. I can I've I've one more one more question for you unless you want to uh, uh elaborate more on that. I could. I mean <laughs> <laughs> like I said there's a huge amount of this stuff going on yeah. always. Um okay so I've got this absence of this present dad, right? I'm young. Yeah. And we had uh over time we developed a family friendship through my sister and her friend with uh, a friend's dad which is part of the question of, of uh, having an older person who might have been a mentor or um, an inspiring kind of older person figure in my life. And so this, this man, his name was John, um, AKA Potshop, because he was a potter as well. And he was uh, the father of a friend of my sister's and he became a family friend, so trusted. And I remember telling him uh, one day that I um, had, I was a bit of a, bit naughty at school I got suspended for fighting and you know I was a dropout bunked off I started smoking cigarettes when I was eight years old you know, <laughs> I was like, really naughty I, I was raised in council uh, social housing and you know all the challenges of coming from a low-income family and all of that stuff so um I got up to so much naughtiness and I was failing school terribly but one of the teachers at school used to take us 
on a weekend outside of school situation, he would take some of these naughty children or even just children that he liked. Um, he'd have permission from parents to take us climbing in uh, Snowdon, Julie, in Wales, which his brother was, um, or is probably was actually, um, uh, a rescue mountain rescue guy so I was telling this friend John Potshop about these climbing experiences I had I'm terrified of heights right really really always have been a still am but I would go climbing because that's what you do and you're scared you know you just go Rah. didn't work didn't cure me um so John said well you could I, I live in Chepstow um Chepstow uh, Herefordshire kind of borders just over Wales by Wales um come and stay so from that point onwards and I was 17 or 18 first time I went and stayed with John and John was my, my, the father I wanted, really, mm. you know. And um, he guided me through um, the process of remembering how to ask questions. Because I was starting to lose that quality already at that age. Through being cynical and feeling let down and not understanding the world. Mm. He always retained this sense of childlike curiosity so he would ask the obvious questions as a child and he never stopped asking those obvious questions and one of the ones he uh, told me that he he did when asked when he was young was about um was it the 4t model the car that was the mm-hmm. the one that everybody was supposed to end up owning because of the automation and everything and that the boast was that because it's now affordable everybody can have a car. And so John would say things like, but what happens when everybody's got a car to his friends or family? And they'd be like, oh, you're such a killjoy. No, we don't care about that stuff. Let's just all hope we can all get a car sort of thing. And he would always ask questions like that. And he kind of reminded me, because I was still, you know, on the cusp of becoming an adult, but still a child. But he reminded me to keep asking questions like this. And um, he was very practical, not particularly spiritually oriented. Um, And he told me a story of uh, the time when he was having a um, terror moment of a massive storm, lightning, thunder and everything. And his favorite thing to do would be to sit out and play under this massive tree in the grounds where he was raised or whatever. I'm not sure if it was even in London, I can't remember. But he said um, how he got through the storm and others when he was really young was he would manifest the tree in his room because his tree was where he would go to sit through his troubles and all of this. And I said, oh, you mean you'd think it and then sort of see it in here? He said, no, I, I would bring the tree into my room and I would then be with the tree and I'd feel safe no matter what was going on. I thought, well, he's crazy John because he's, he's so high for, you know, his stories and everything were always so crazy like just amazing too mad for me but he was not into the metaphysical particularly but I was a girl from the council estate who no clue about any of this stuff and he would speak occasionally like that about um, a tree or some other interesting and very left of center for me kind of way of looking at the world and he handed me keys each time key to open a door that I wouldn't be able to open at the time because I didn't understand it or it was too weird for me. I couldn't handle it, you know. Um, and then he would tell me another story about um, when we would be in London sometimes, we were just about to go away to 
stay in his place. And he said, let's go for a walk. Uh, I want to go on, let's go to central London. Uh, let's do a little walk around there. So we go for a walk and he'd stop. We'd get into sort of city uh, bank area, sort of old central London. And um, we'd stop and he'd stop and say, okay, we're going to do manhole covers today. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what do you mean we're doing manhole covers? So we'd, we'd stop and he'd uh, show me some manhole covers and they would be, have Th Thomas Crapper on them, you know, the original guy with the water closet. And he would then from that, water, this manhole in the middle of the street, he would tell me stories of the area of, you know, anything that was connected. Um, he explained about the cholera outbreak and how they actually realized about waterborne diseases. Um, so stories like that, you know, going for a walk on Hampstead Heath and hearing birds singing and him mimicking the sound of them attuned my ear as a musician. Uh, mm -hmm. So many, you know, I'm skimming through these things. Mm -hmm. And that was John. And he basically, I feel, gave me a sense of how beautiful the world is and can be if your perspective is open to it. And I think it feels like the beginning of my awareness of possibilities and potentials. When you look yeah. at a manhole cover and suddenly you're talking about waterborne diseases and cholera and how people lived back then, a manhole and, cover is no longer a manhole cover, you know? And, and here's a man, this is a beautiful story too, because here's a man who, like, who knows what hopes and dreams and ambitions he had in his life, but here he's spending his time with a teenage girl yeah. And whatever ambition he had, there's no rational way that this is going to fulfill his ambition or get him ahead in life or make him any money or get him any applause, you know, celebration, fame, nothing. Mm -hmm. So he's, but he's making that choice in kind of the same spirit that you made the choice to stay home with your daughter. Mm -hmm. Because I know in my heart that this is important. Yeah. And in your case, there was an obvious payoff in a sense, mm -hmm. um, but I, we can't like assume that it's gonna come in such a neat package, you know, that you're gonna make the sacrifice and then you're gonna have what you wanted anyway and even better and they all lived happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Like there's, like, I don't know the the, the story of John and, and if he could tell us a story of, thank God that I, you know, mentored Yolanda like that because it led to this, this, another thing, like maybe that didn't happen. Yet there is in me a knowing that it always, there is always a return gift. It may be beyond our comprehension and beyond the confines of linear time and our biographies, you know, as humans. Mm. But really, is there any other way to live, you know, than the way that that he was living in the way that you're describing in your stories. It's, uh... it's incredible. And I think about that now, given the way that people perceive risk and safety and, and danger, stranger danger and things like that. It just sounds terrible. You know, this 40 plus year old man takes 60, 17 year old girl under his wing, mentors her, takes her out to his cottage in the, in the countryside and, you know, basically just shows her about mountain climbing and, I, he he knows I was afraid of heights, so he had me abseil down hit this huge tree in his garden. You know, he he was um, someone who grew his own food and he built his own house with his hands. You know, and mm. it just 
I couldn't ever really, I always felt really like when I was telling somebody about my friend, my dear, dear, dear friend, they would add this uncomfortable element of what was he after to it, you know, oh. and I would try and explain he wasn't after anything, you know, um, actually, I want to, I have to tell this story because it's about you in a way. Um, John let me down twice, only ever. And the second time that he let me down and, and I forgave him because no human is perfect, you know. The second time he let me down was when I, we were talking about um, ecology and all of the talk about, you know, what's going on with um, environmental movement and stuff. And he didn't have a lot of patience for it. He felt they were missing the trick here and there. You know, he was quite frustrated with the, the earnestness and then the kind of maybe short-sightedness occasionally. This was, you know, he was there the first time around in the 60s, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So he had that legacy of, of the talk and he had a little patience for it. So we were talking about all of this stuff and I just said, well, I know that the, they don't all agree, all the climate guys and women, they're studying this hard and they're talking about this stuff and they're fighting. And because he was explaining some of the logistics of, of why things don't move forward, et cetera. And I said, well, what if they just cleaned up the rivers and just, you know, stopped polluting quite so much? Wouldn't everybody just be a bit happier that they're not breathing in gases and drinking contaminated water? And wouldn't that actually affect things the way that, you know, emissions and all of that as well. If we just cleaned up the things that we can do, the things that are measurable, we could sort that out. And he said, oh, you don't quite understand what, what you know, the, that's kind of too simplistic. You don't quite understand the permutations and all the rest of it. And I was like, okay. So he shut me down, right? So then I think 2018, I think I got hold of um, Climate, A New Story. And I read that in your book. <laughs> <laughs> And I was about 18 and I said that, I was 19 to um, John, which sounded like common sense to me, but anyway. And then I read your, well, I haven't even finished the book. I, I tend to read in little bits here and there, you know, but I read that in your book and I just felt so understood by that common thinking. It actually helped me in such a massive way to just have a bit more confidence in my childish notions that sometimes I feel like things are so obvious and if I say them, because it doesn't have papers and research papers, I don't have any letters. I didn't do university. I left school with a B in English and a, a music qualification. I failed everything else because I was a dropout, you know. Um, I don't have those credentials to have the legitimacy that others will take, pay attention to. But it doesn't mean I don't have ideas. And I think that's the case with most of us. When we lack confidence and belief and trust in those notions, those ideas, and when they're coming from a place that's a simplistic place of childhood, a childhood notion, it's actually free of a lot of the baggage and conceit and erroneous knowledge, I'd say that maybe barking up the wrong tree knowledge, um, that we add on to us later, it obscures the clarity and ability to see right through to the crux of the matter. And um, yeah. when I read that in your book, I just felt, Oh, actually, actually, that's really quite cool. I feel totally backed up. <laughs> that was so cool. But it took you know, 35 years to get there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I don't feel like I think of the ideas that I put in my books. Sure. I think that I'm actually tuning in to the ideas that, you know, 18-year-old Yolanda had and, and millions of other people had. And I'm just kind of like the the tuning antenna or the instrument that gathers all of those ideas and writes them down. Sure. I'm just like a tuning fork. 
you know. Yes, that's the thing, but you're attuned. You see, this is the thing. I have a theory about the f- a physical manifestation of a kind of frequency thing, mm. which means that things come or happen. That side of things, that the, the most kind of, the biggest illustration of that for me is during childbirth. So mm. my story there is there's, there's gift and there's that trust and then there's also a power in little faith or no trust as well, like a destructive, like the one with my dad. But the no trust can lead to protecting yourself from things that you don't mm-hmm. need or shouldn't, you know, it's less, the less good choice. So in my case, it was I had no trust in bringing my baby into the world using the hospital system. Yeah, I come from very much the sort of regular how to do childbirth. Everybody does it in a hospital on their back baby pops out, women screams a lot, ouch, pain, epidurals, all the rest of it. And I started reading about this stuff. Now I was quite a tomboy. I was growing up being, being a bass player, surprise, surprise. And I just didn't have enough women around to sort of nurture me through what was going to happen. Me and my mum didn't really discuss that stuff much. And I just started reading books and realised that I didn't want any intervention. It seemed to me, and this was logic, right? It seemed to me that the more intervention there was, the more chance of more pain, more, you know, more intervention creates more intervention. I didn't want the interference. So I, my, a friend of mine said, well, the best way to avoid interference is when you're in, when you're in water, they can't get at you that often, <laughs> you know. They only make you get out of the water occasionally. And I thought, and it serves to uh, work as pain relief too. So it sounded like win-win to me had no clue about, you know, any spiritual, you know, water birth or sort of, you know, mm-hmm. at one with things. I didn't know about any of that stuff. Like I said, I, I just not, hadn't been attuned to it. So it was purely practical, logical, how to get them away. No trust. I'm going to do it this way. So now I'm, I didn't also, I couldn't handle going to birthing classes because culturally it was too white and middle class for me. I couldn't handle all of the stuff. It was alien. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, 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 I was really uncomfortable, really. So I just didn't go to any childbirth classes, nothing. I'm now in labor and I'm in water. And I thought, well, this is actually all right. You know, they only let you in at five centimeters. So I thought I can handle this, I think. And I'm, I was just chatting away normally. And every time they said, my ex-husband and the midwife said, every time you're going through a contraction, you go quiet. That's how we know that you're going through one. Well, okay, that was then. As this uh, birth progressed, I started to get more than quite a bit louder. And then I found a place in my body of resonance that when I hit the note, I felt like I could push the pain away Mm. and I could just open more as a, a whole body would just feel so loose. And it was the lower I went in my tone um, the sound comes from five places in the body, right? So diaphragm, chest, throat, head, no, nose, mm-hmm. frontal, and then head. And the more I went low, the more, which is where I can also, also go bassier down there as well. Um, the more loose and relaxed I was feeling, which meant that the pain would be dispersing as opposed to holding on. Because if you scream, you're tense, right? Mm-hmm. So not screaming was the thing to do which i'm sure they say in the birthing classes but remember i hadn't been to any and i kind of realized that in a physics kind of level or whatever the way that sound wave works with lower sound is is a wave less of the sharp kind of um points and more of the curves 
So there's this kind of element of the the frequency of the moan and the I call it the whale song. You know, it's like really low. Mm-hmm. And the more low I was going, the more loose and open I could be. So I had these births, all three of them in water, actually, that were just like, I don't know, I, I would feel like I was almost underwater, or course I wasn't, but I could feel like my body was just relaxed into a frequency that made the most sense for my body and my muscles to become relaxed enough to allow for the smoothest um, transition. Mm-hmm. and into allowing the baby out into the water and it just felt right to do it but i followed it it told me what i what note to sing you know where to allow the reverberation mm-hmm. in my body to occur i had no clue just literally mm-hmm. just witnessing and then doing and i think it's the same thing with how i've done everything <laughs> it's like I, i'm led and i follow as opposed mm-hmm. to i seek out and force yeah, very evocative story. Uh, you know, Pat, Patsy and I also went the natural route. I guess it's the same. Like, we didn't trust the system of you know hospital births and all that. And this place of no trust that you were talking about, I'm, I'm meditating on it. It's not about choosing to trust wisely or not. It's about recognizing whether I actually trust or not. That's where it is, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Trust yeah. isn't actually a choice. Right. It's it's either like some people you just trust them, mm-hmm. and some people you just don't, and the, the harm comes when you pretend to yourself and to another that you trust somebody that you actually don't trust. Yeah. So like it, during your story, the cliche came to mind: "Well, trust your body." Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually not quite that. It is to tune into the trust that you have for your body already, mm-hmm. which could be obscured by all kinds of programming and trauma. Mm-hmm. But it's accessible. And once you do that, like you have this incredible knowledge of what sound to make that re- resonates with that state, you know, and transports you from agony to some other form of intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm, so much it, in that yeah it's not it's not that it's pain free it's that it's the right kind of action that has a physical consequence that you can handle so yeah. it's not pain free but it's just that it is bearable because it needs to be that action so that the cervix can open and everything mm-hmm. so you accept it. it has to happen that way but it's not the, for me the actual real pain is the fight mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. not allowing it's mm-hmm. the holding and the no, you know, and the scream, the tension in the body when you scream and shout. It's all up here, but the mm. um, allowing is down here, which is where it needs to be occurring, you know, when you actually are actually giving birth. And I think giving birth <laughs> to ideas is the same again, isn't it? It's allowing these things to following them through. Don't fight them. Don't resist them by saying, oh, that's too childish. I, oh, I'm going to throw mm-hmm. that. I feel ridiculous. I felt a bit ridiculous when I wrote you that letter and I put unicorn, my little unicorn story in there. I thought, mm-hmm. actually, that's kind of a little bit silly. But you know what? That's what popped into the he- my head. I'm not going to fake it. I'm just going to own it and just put it there. If, if I get judged, I doubt I will. But if I did, I can handle it because it's authentic. It's real. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I'm not afraid anymore of the potential that I might come across as ridiculous. I have no fear because mm-hmm. I know where it's coming from. 
the yeah. thing I'm saying. It doesn't matter yeah. what, what it was perceived as immature or childish. I don't have a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wasn't trying to suggest that, you know, childbirth can or should be pain-free, but oh, I'm yeah, just, no. of course, of course. yeah, I, I'm just, uh, and I'm also thinking about the childbirths. I've been present to four of them, uh, yeah. which I would have to say are the four most precious moments of my life. Those four childbirths. What a, mm. what a miracle and what a gift. Um, I can't imagine what it's like seeing one. I haven't seen one. I want to. Oh my God. It's just like, it must be really scary. Maybe someday you will. Maybe you'll have a daughter you give birth yeah. someday. It's just yeah. so humbling, especially. Uh, I mean, the first one was, you know, a miracle in its own way. And then the, the later ones, like knowing that you're seeing this being for the first time who will flower into a, like there's so much curiosity, you know, who is this person going to be? Here they are in the world. You know, some cultures I've heard would, in fact, that they do this in an eco village. I, I know of uh, when a child is born that everyone gathers around and outside the birthing house and they're singing. So the first thing that yeah. the child hears is being surrounded by song of celebration and of welcome. Mm. Such a different experience than the hospital. Mm. So I wanted to also just to just you know touch on music also. Mm -hmm. It's so cool that you have worked with Hans Zimmer. His music touched me very deeply. Um, like I've just listened to a little bit of your work, and for what I and this is just a very cursory knowledge, but you do a fair amount of improvisational playing, you know, which is also um, a kind of trust. I mean, any kind of improvisation, you're trusting what the next note, the next step, the next place to go is. And I wonder if you could make any connection between these stories you've been telling and these learnings about trust and luck and so forth and the way that you play and the way that you are a musician. Well, yeah, I think that we are lucky enough as musicians, we generally, generally trust each other automatically. We don't, I don't know if we, I would love to speak to other musicians about this and ask what their perspective is, because I'm not sure that mine's universal, but I don't question the need to trust my fellow musicians when we're all together playing. We all are serving the same outcome or desire at that time. And we have our little kind of piece of the puzzle to manage. And it's our responsibility to look after that and I expect, and I presume everyone else does in each other, that we're going to be trying and doing our best. And if people are not on their game, like they're not doing a great job, it's not because they've betrayed us. They're just having a bad time, personally, individually. So that's why, when I was thinking about this question, I thought the trust element that we need as musicians, that is often difficult for us, I think, to tap into, is our trust in our audience and our ability to communicate with them or accept that they are with us. Because I think that our inner dialogue gets in the way. It gives us a false sense of what's going on. If we trusted mm. our audience more, we would be attuned to their enjoyment of what we are doing. Mm. So we would get less of those moments where we leave the stage feeling like we've had a bad gig 
and somebody comes up to you and says that was a fantastic gig how many times do musicians have those stories of feeling absolutely rubbish <sighs> and somebody just says that gig moved me and was amazing and you think well I wasn't feeling that but they were and that's usually because we've got some dialogue thing going on we made a mistake that we regret or embarrassed by or we tried to do something we'd been practicing when we came to execution it flopped you know we're in this other world sometimes that's not every gig the gigs that are great is when we're all aligned and we can feel the audience's energy and they can feel ours but those gigs are actually more they're rarer than normal i have the same thing as a public speaker you know sometimes i i give my speech you know and i'm like ah oh, that was shit like that was <laughs> i was really? you know I was fake, I was inauthentic, I wasn't connecting to people, you know, mm. like it went over like a lead balloon and then someone will come up and, and say that that was amazing. And right. they were deeply moved and in tears and stuff. But other times I have a feeling of intimacy yeah. with the audience where where it's not a speech, it's it's like a relationship. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been to musical performances like that too, where it's not a performance, they're not just, going through their show, but they're playing for us, mm -hmm. not for an abstract audience. And they could just as well be in studio, yes. you know, going through the motions, mm -hmm. but they're actually in relationship. Mm -hmm. And this is what people are hungry for, <laughs> hungry for actual communication, actual intimacy. And there's mm -hmm. a different quality to music that's played when there's, you know, when there's an actual connection, a relationship happening. That's for me, and this is for speaking as well, it's harder for me to do that if I'm just speaking to a camera rather than being in front of an audience and in the energy and I can see everybody's face yes. and I can hear their breath. Mm. And, and like, there's just so many more dimensions of mm. communication. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like you said, you're, you're like, you're not really a studio musician. You're like, you like to tour, you know, you like to be in person. Mm -hmm. And I've also... You know, that's what I was doing too before COVID. And I wonder, how has this been for you? And like, where are you with all this? Well, it's been a huge loss, but it's a, a loss of emotional connection. You know, like you say, that the, the feeding of my spirit to do with when I play my instrument is wit the witnessing. It, it's not actually applause, to be quite honest. It's the witnessing. It's, the sh it's like you say, that shared energy, the exchange of energy as well. But it's also um, the, the freedom to say something in a moment that's gone as well. And, you know, the communication via the screens and Zooms and um, streamed performances. We have this uh, term, you know, red light-itis or I don't know what it's called. Uh, you know, when you have the fear of when the red light's on, you've been recorded. It changes your performance. Mm -hmm. um, knowing that it's not just a one-off moment, you're, it's there forever and you can't take anything back and people can really take time and analyze things out of context. And if they were there on the day, they would have had a great time. But if they're watching it for the 30th time, they can pick holes and it takes away from a shared experience. I can't witness you or a person enjoying watch my witness, witnessing me. I can't watch that. And so I don't get anything from just being observed through a recording when I'm playing. 
-hmm. I understand that people who are watching can get something from it, but as an observer, as a, as a as a fan of musicians, I don't like to watch musicians on screens either. I've gone through phases where I cannot even listen to recorded music. Right. You know, because they're not playing for me. <laughs> you know, and and I've also like been at events where like, okay, Charles, we're going to record you. You know, I'm like, no, let's not record this. It'll yeah. be more powerful if we don't mm -hmm. record it. But don't you want to get out to more people? No, because I want to speak to you. Yeah. I don't want to speak to you plus this red light, you know, <laughs> yeah. that you were saying this, this eye. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's hard to, to measure it, you know, or even give a name to this quality of presence and gathering. Mm. But to me, it's sacred. And I really want to uh, put out there to everybody who's listening that we should hold it sacred, that we should hold live performances and in-place relationships and gatherings sacred and not only hold death postponement and risk minimization sacred. Like there's such a thing as living, mm -hmm. not just staying alive. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I live for community and the thing that i would say actually about that is that everything that i am even when just coming into the world as a baby and everything i touch everything i sit upon eat involves other humans there isn't a, a moment that i'm actually alone and you know the bed i sleep in was made or designed at least by a human with ingenuity inventiveness excitement you know, picking up a plastic beaker or something, you know, everything that we touch and is a communion of some form. Mm. And um, I think that the live performance of any kind and, and witnessing people in situ, face to face, it's like the ceremonial element of what we do in our jobs and everything we design and make, but then we need to celebrate as well. We can't just design and make and consume. We need to celebrate too, because it's a release and a letting go of mm -hmm. uh, tensions and other things. And missing that, I think it's really affecting everybody, not just performers who are missing that, but those that need to be there too. Yeah. And, and cool. um, I'm really, honestly, NARS is such a great thing. I know it's early stages of some teething issues here and there. Such a great idea that you've done that. I hope it works out, whatever it is that your intention behind it is, I suppose, just drawing people who have commonalities. I don't know. What is it? Is it just find a space um, to hang? <laughs> the, even the intention is evolving. Right. It's one of those things that we knew we should do and we didn't really know why. Yeah. Thank you for helping hold that vibration of peace. Oh, good. No, I, I actually wasn't sure how to use the space because it feels quite intellectual at times. And um, I, I'm, I'm less interested in that. I was more interested in it becoming a friendly social media kind of mm -hmm. area where people share pictures of their cats, you know, as well, but with less of yeah, the, yeah. you know, the other stuff, the angst. And um, this is a place that actually is not really about sharing pictures of cats as much as that is fun. I think it's actually as well a place of healing, to be quite honest, is how I see yes. it now. So it wasn't like that for me at first. And when I appreciated that it's a place of healing, I rather than thinking, oh, I can help anyone heal, I thought, I'll use it as a place for healing, me, mm. you know. 
Uh, so I'm use, I've started using it that way. And as soon as I started to do that, I did like maybe three posts now like that um, of offering learning that I've gone through and stuff. My interactions with people have become better and I feel mm -hmm. more comfortable by being more trusting that I can do that because it, it's, yeah. I think it was needed for me. I, I was just wondering how to use the space. And I think to heal and help anyone else who, who might benefit from any healing that I'm yeah, and then and then your example could catalyze other people to do the same. I think that's a really great idea because some of the, uh, you know, political and ideological divisions like they they cannot be bridged right now. No, right. You know, we have to reach for some deeper common humanity than that. Mm, yeah. It is, and I, I think it's a very difficult discussion to have with people who feel very marginalized and powerless to say that you have more power than you realize. Because mm -hmm. if you're holding on to a sense of powerlessness and you're actually not using it, but able to, to speak from that place, if somebody takes that away from you too, don't take my powerlessness away from me. That's, right. my, that's my place to speak from. I, right. I, it's a painful thing to, to, to have to do to oneself yeah. is to remove your, the only power you have is your perceived powerlessness. I, I don't expect anybody to be able to do that easily. So I, I think not it's... Easy difficult to broach i'm yeah. gonna think carefully before right. i go there really you know yeah yeah i would definitely need to uh tread lightly yeah yeah I, i'm gonna uh remain open and and just not allow people's kind of pain in that area to be transferred onto me because i'm not carrying this pain mm -hmm. in the same way i've got other issues but i've worked through so many things through being my gender my all the things that make me me yeah had to be those things in a space of unwelcome with black males black females what you know every demographic mm -hmm. that's supposed to be something i could fit with there'll be a reason why i don't and it's because i'm a musician or it's because i'm i get on so great with men that my their girlfriends hate me because they think i'm trying to take the guy away or something right. you know just all these stuff where you're supposed to have feminine support mm -hmm you don't have it it's removed yeah. from you because you're in a male world and i'm just thinking right now so someone's gonna you know harshly criticize our conversation because i didn't ask you about you know right. what is it like to be a black woman in a world that is you know in a music world that is you know dominated by white males in that particular the genre that you're in i know and it's, it's so many yeah. other things to say about that i i would almost want a whole conversation about othering of people and how you know labels and all sorts i think if we were to go there with that it would take us away from the theme of conversation so yeah it's like to go there is like to reduce you oh i'm going to see you as you know this identity rather than as a full human being who has the sovereignty and volition to talk about that mm -hmm. if she thinks it's important like mm -hmm. i don't have to like make it about that you know i feel like well, there's a kind of patronizing thing there. Oh, you see, now I'm glad that you said that because this one of my problems, you see, is that the race discussion is about allowing black people space to speak of their truth, but controlling the truth that they speak, which is giving a black person a space to speak means they have to speak about black issues. What? Mm -hmm. That's very narrow. I have other things going on in my life besides how uh, being black affects my view of the world. And if I'm forced into a space like that, then I feel like just as much uh, powerless as I am before I was offered a space. If it's gotta mm. be controlled by the person inviting me 
And the other thing is that instead of asking for space, asking for things from the dominant culture, I actually just want the dominant culture to stop, to just get out of my way. As opposed to giving me, I want them to move aside and let me come through, mm -hmm. not through being given anything, but just stop blocking, stop stopping, mm -hmm. stop not allowing, stop cronying, cronyism kind mm -hmm. of practice. And actually the true empowerment is to not have at the head of everything another white person saying, hey, black people, come in here. I'm going to make this space for you. It's like, no, no, no. Uh -huh. We just don't want you in dialogue sometimes. Sometimes it, the lens shouldn't always be from the one that you are in control of. Yeah. You know, and that's hard to sort of say because I know people want things. They want to be allowed and given and all of that. I don't want permission. I, I, I don't want anyone else in the conversation. I want to be able to just do. That's another conversation that I can't have easily. Because um, at the moment, everything's about giving us a voice, giving us the right to speak or the space to speak and all of this stuff. And I, I just think that the more you ask, the more you say, no, positive discrimination is okay um, because we want to boost and, and equity and all of this. It's just causing people who are struggling, who are white or not fitting in with that, to just dislike us even more. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's, it creates the opposite of what it, oh. it says it wants. Yeah. yeah, it's, you know, recently I've been actually, um, my podcast is very sporadic, but um, uh, speaking to quite a few black women. Uh -huh. um, and, and I almost want to like, to, to like announce this isn't because they're black. Okay. <laughs> You know, like I'm not talking to you because you're black. Like it's because you're fascinating. You know, it's not because like I want to give equal space to, you know, no. And I'm almost like worried about being perceived that way. You know, that I'm like caving to some like political trend or something. Well, you're you're going to get that. You're going to get people thinking that way. You're going to get people on NAS thinking that you've asked me to speak because I outed myself as a, um, you know, touring musician in a, bit more of an obvious way. I've been hiding that stuff from the website, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, yeah. oh, she works with famous people. That's why she got invited in. It, it's going to oh. be useful or something. People will add their cynicism on. Like I said, you know, like uh, before that when people have those judgments, I can't control what makes them think that way. Right. Um, we're doing this from the place that you've made your decision from. And I know why I'm here and I'm confident on that. As soon as yeah. somebody raises their head above the parapet to say, this is what I think that's behind all of this. I can ignore it or I can say, here's my, here's the truth of the situation. Um, you can, the only next stage is to call me a liar. That's all. Yeah. But this, there is a, a reasoning behind this and it's genuine and, and meant heartfelt. And I'm happy to let them go away with that. It doesn't matter because yeah. we just can't control it, right? What people are going to yeah. think of us. And I don't think it. So let's just go with that because I'm happy to be here and I don't think there's anything dodgy about it at all. Yeah. Well, me too. I'm super happy to talk to you. And, uh, you know, obviously we'll stay in touch and have some other opportunity to interact, collaborate, something. Oh, listen, if I'm ever in your neck of the woods, I'm totally going to write to you. Totally, yeah. Yeah, you've got to come to a gig or something. Yeah. In fact, actually, what I'm doing next is I'm, I'm actually about to sign a contract to join Sting's band. Uh-huh. I don't know if you like the police and all that stuff. I do. I love, I mean, the, you know, the stuff from back in the day. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you, if we're around, you know, we're doing an author, two more North American tours of penciled in. So I'm sure mm -hmm. we're going to be somewhere near 
where you live. Yeah, yeah, I would totally go, commute, go to yeah. that. Yeah. You know, if Big Brother lets us travel, I might be back in the UK sometime as well. And in the meantime, if uh, listeners are curious to hear you play and stuff, like, is there somewhere where you could point to us as, you know, a go-to to explore your music a little? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm because I've been doing it 30 years, there's so many things around. Um, if people have Netflix, then um, I'm the bass player on Hans Zimmer Live in Prague. There's a, cool. a two-hour show that they uh, filmed and put, made available. My website has access to other things, um, g4dz.com. If you okay. just put my name in Google, you'll find loads of stuff. Just pick yeah. it. Pick your choice, but um, I have a Patreon. It's always good to mm -hmm. mention that. I have a SoundCloud, so all of my original music is free to listen to. Hence the Patreon, because my mm -hmm. music's for free. You have to find some other way to generate some support. Um, yeah. So. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, I hope people do support you and and enjoy your offerings. And um, yeah, thank you for your time for this conversation. So lovely. You know, just feels so boosted by this with so much sort of loving energy. It just feels so great. So thank you so much for inviting me to speak. It really is an honor. I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude. Thanks. Mm. Well, I feel the same. I feel the same, Yolanda. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. Great. Well, um, yeah, there we are. That was oh, great. Wow. Gosh. Ah. <laughs> I was quite nervous to speak to you, actually, especially. Really? Well, only because I'm, you know, I am a fan, to be quite honest, you know. Yeah. Well, um, I am pretty scary, so, you know, I don't blame you. Oddly and lovely. It's great. I'm so happy. Because yeah. I've seen lots of your videos. I know that you're not an intimidating academic intellectual type, you know, you're, you're much nicer than that. So I wasn't intimidated by the idea, but, you know, I just wanted to make sure that I could offer some value in some mm -hmm. form. But then, yeah. you know, your life is... Well, really it was beautiful. Different. So that that box is checked. Cool. Good. Yeah. This has been A New and Ancient Story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.